Monday, this coming Monday, the 3rd. Uh, that's the one mentioned in Zechariah 7 and 8, one of the, the four that are mentioned there. And it comes up, uh, as I have been reading a little bit and researching it just lately, uh, some of the Jews say that it actually, the death of Gedaliah occurred on the Feast of Trumpets. But since it was a holy day, they didn't, and a feast day, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, they decided not to observe it on the Feast of Trumpets itself, but to have it two days later. Uh, I don't know that that type of postponement is necessarily wrong. Postponing the heavens is definitely wrong. But uh, to move that a couple of days so it doesn't interfere with one of God's holy days uh, may not be a problem. And it's not been truly established that that was uh, the case, that it actually did happen on trumpets. It's just that some Jews think that. So who knows? But uh, to keep it on the third is fine. Now, I do want to mention this about it. Uh, we've been keeping a full 24-hour fast since we began doing this, keeping the fast of the month that Zechariah seems to indicate we should be. Uh, but I, I did some research on it, and I don't know that that is entirely necessary and may not indeed be necessary. We think of the Day of Atonement, which is the only fast day that God... Uh, stipulated in Scripture, and he stipulates very clearly that it is to be from sundown to sundown, the beginning of the tenth of the month, until the end of that day, which is sundown to sundown. Make, he makes that very clear. However, uh, all fasts in the Bible uh, did not follow that pattern. Uh, that's the only one mentioned as a feast. And, of course, all of the holy days are from sundown to sundown to get the full day in there. But let me cite just an example or two without going into a, a whole lot of Scripture so that we kind of get the picture. Often when calamities occurred in the Old Testament, people would start a fast immediately. They'd rent their clothes, sometimes sackcloth and ashes, and they'd begin a fast at that moment. They didn't wait till sundown to start a fast. And they didn't always wait till sundown to end the fast. I think it's important we understand that. An example would be when David and his men heard that Saul had been killed. They immediately rent their clothes and they began to fast and fasted till sundown. Now, I don't know what time of the day they heard that news, whether it was morning, early afternoon, or whatever. But it was just the rest of that uh, day. Uh, until sundown that evening, that they kept it. Another example uh, of David was when he heard the news that his first son, born of Bathsheba, was going to die. He didn't wait till sundown. He immediately fell on his face and started fasting and praying. And we don't know what that time of day necessarily that was, but it was apparently was the daylight portion of the day. Nathan had come to him and given him uh, instruction from God. So, he began to fast then. Now, when did he end that fast? At sundown someday? No. As soon as he heard the news that the baby had died, the purpose of his fast had ended. God had given his answer. The child is indeed going to die like I told you. And his fasting and his prayer did not change that decision that God had made. His will be done. <laughs> so, David stopped fasting the moment he perceived, because of the rustling and murmuring of the servants around, that uh, something had happened, um, he got up off the floor and, and he stopped his mourning. He didn't mourn anymore, didn't fast or pray anymore. God had given his answer, that was good enough for David, and uh, so he ceased to fast. So there's a, a couple of examples, at least, that... Uh, that a fast is not always sunset to sunset. On atonement, it is, very clearly, and in the Scripture. Now, the Jews are the ones who instituted the fasts of the months, those four, again, in Zechariah, that God made part of Scripture and indicates that during these 70 years we should have been fasting. Uh, we didn't through the 70 years of Worldwide Church of God, roughly speaking, about 70 years. Uh, but the end-time prophecy of Zechariah 
recounts the story, and I do believe that we should be fasting on these days. However, do we need to go as far as we do uh, from sunset to sunset? I, I looked into the history of this and what the Jews have traditionally done, even way back, not just recently, but everything I could find on the Internet from the Jewish encyclopedia to uh, Jewish rabbis' writings and various things. Uh, they have varying degrees of belief on this, but overall, uh, it's they keep the fasts of the months uh, from sunrise to sunset, essentially, of the day of the memorial for it. Uh, some of them stretch it from the beginning of sunrise or as it begins to get light until the stars appear. Some of them do it that way. They want to be sure, I guess, to get it in uh, the full day. Uh, others stay up the previous night and if they happen to doze off, they don't eat or drink after the time that they dozed off. However, if they're able to stay awake until 2 a.m., then they stop eating and drinking at 2 a.m. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can get down to the point if you can't tear off toilet paper or flip a light switch on on the Sabbath kind of thinking. But uh, essentially, overall, the fasts of the four of those months, the four fasts of those months, were done from about sunrise until sunset, with a little bit of variation in just exactly how they did it. So, uh, how much, how long a fast do you need to commemorate or to remember or make sure you think of what transpired on those days? the siege on Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the death of Gedaliah. Uh, if you start a fast at sunrise and you miss lunch and don't eat or drink until sunset, uh, you'll think about it, you'll remember it, you'll know what it's about, and yet it isn't a Sabbath, it's a work day. And, you know, it's a normal day that you can, you can work. Uh, so, what it amounts to really is skipping lunch. Uh, maybe a, a really early breakfast if you want to eat before sunrise, and then a late dinner if you wait till after sunset, but the only actual meal you would miss would be noon. And that's as far as the Jews have taken it. One of those four they have kept from sunset to sunset, which is the ninth of Av, which commemorated the destruction of the temple itself. That one they have gone ahead and kept sunset to sunset, but there is no, there's nothing in the Scripture that says how long that fast needs to be. And if the Jews who instituted them way back before Zechariah's time did not keep them a full 24 hours, I don't see any reason why we would be obligated to keep them that long. In other words, private fasts or calamitous fasts or personal spiritual fast for whatever reason is something you set the time of. Whether it's a part of a day, a full day, three days, 40 days, 40 nights, or whatever. Uh, that's your decision. And I know I have, in years gone by, decades gone by, felt that any fast ought to be 24 hours because of the atonement thing. But then upon reading some of these scriptures, David and his men, when Saul died, may have only fasted three or four or five hours. And that was the end of it. Sundown came. So what is the purpose of your particular fast? Uh, is it your spiritual condition or whatever? Or as in David's case with the son, was it to pray to God until an answer was given? And when the answer came, he quit fasting immediately. Uh, got up, went on about his business, didn't even continue mourning because, hey, that's God's decision, so I'm not going to mourn it further. So we see flexibility in Scripture, and there are a lot more examples of that that I could give you as well. But I think that's enough to show that that, that is the case. So I don't feel that we need to obligate ourselves to fast the full 24 hours for the fast of the months. If you want to, you certainly can.
but that was not apparently the Jewish way of doing it, and they're the ones who instituted it, and God then backed it up and put it in Scripture. So I think we should do it, but this coming Monday, uh, I feel, based on the research I've done, that if we start just before sunrise uh, and end just after sunset, that we will have commemorated it in at least as much uh, fashion as the Jews ever have. And we don't necessarily need to go above and beyond that. So, it's not a feast of joy yet, but at least it's not as long a fast uh, that I think we're obligated to do. Okay, I, I guess that was just an announcement, actually, since the fast is coming up on Monday. But we also have the Day of Atonement coming up on Monday the 10th, a week well, ten days from today. Monday the 10th is the Day of Atonement. And we will have a service on atonement at one o'clock uh, mountain time, as, as we, same, day, same time of day that we are keeping today. Uh, and then the Feast of Tabernacles begins Saturday the 15th of October, in which we're going to have services on that day at 11 and 2 mountain time. So, again, it's on the weekly Sabbath. Uh, begins on it and ends on it, the 22nd. And we'll give you more times of services and more detail on that later. But just to mention, there, I had a phone call or two with questions about it just uh, this past week. Now let's get on with the message for today, <clears throat> since this is the Feast of Trumpets. Often on Feast of Trumpets, we will read quite a few different scriptures, and we normally include 1 Thessalonians 4, about the first resurrection, and we very frequently might go to 1 Corinthians 15, and I plan to do such today, but uh, I want to take the time in today's sermon to lay a little background. It's really easy to go read two or three verses about the first resurrection, uh, or a little longer one in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. But today let's examine the context in which the writers, Paul in each case, wrote what they wrote about the resurrection. Context is so important and vital in the Bible, and we can read the good parts about trumpets, but let's also read what he has to say and what may have led him up to saying the things that he did say. Because there is some advice, some instruction, some help for us in the things leading up to, including and even after what he had to say in Thessalonians and in Corinthians. So let's go to First, Thess First Thessalonians today. Uh, and in chapter 2, in verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which are in Judea and are in Christ. And you've also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So he's writing to these people about some of the suffering that they had been going through. <clears throat> now, we know many scriptures that show us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, uh, and so on, like Psalm thirty-four, nineteen, and others. But God will deliver. But here they are actually experiencing some of those things that the Bible talks about. Uh, speaking of the Jews who did kill Christ and their own prophets, they killed the prophets as well, and have persecuted us, speaking of the apostles and the ministry of his day. And they please not God and are contrary to all men. So he was dealing with people who were giving him trouble and the other apostles in ministry trouble in that day, just as they had given Christ trouble and killed him, and as they had given the former prophets trouble and killed them. So he's establishing here a context of what he is writing about, and that will lead to some of the comments he makes later. So he says in 16, Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So Paul was trying, and some of the other ministry, Timothy and others, were trying to preach to the Gentiles 
And the Jews forbade that. Not give your, not talk to the dogs, as they termed them. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence. Now, Paul and Timothy and some who were traveling with them were not able and did not feel that it was good to try to travel to Thessalonica to see these people. We'll read about it more as we go. We wanted to be there. So it's not that it wasn't in our heart, he says, not to come. But we endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Now, they worked at getting the trip accomplished, is what he's saying. We wanted to come there. And we worked hard to get there. We wanted to see your face with great desire. Verse 18, Wherefore, we would have come to you, even I, Paul, once and again, back and forth, but Satan hindered us. So there were certain things in his ministry that Paul tried to accomplish, even places he wanted to go, and not only once but again. Apparently over and over again, he would try to do something and would be hindered by Satan himself. So God's ministry did not always have uh, let's say, uh, a little protection around them so that they could always go do exactly what they felt ought to be done at that moment. They ran into trouble. They ran into difficulties. They ran into enemies. And even though they greatly desired to make this trip, they couldn't do it because Satan apparently threw up some roadblocks. He doesn't explain what. But caused certain things to happen so that they couldn't get it done. Satan is always there to hinder what needs to be done. Let us keep that in mind. He is still alive. <laughs> and he still hinders wherever he can. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Emmanuel at his coming? So he says... We've got trouble here. We've been hindered. We've been prevented. But don't forget the joy that is ahead of us. The crown of rejoicing. The Feast of Trumpets, if you will. The first resurrection. That's what we're here about. I talked to my sister who's suffering very greatly with cancer last Sunday. And we had a good talk about life and death, and she's only 62, which is pretty young, really, in these days. Uh, but I told her it doesn't matter whether we live 30, 40, or 90 years on this earth. I, maybe I mentioned that last week. No, because that was Sunday after Sabbath, so I just couldn't have. But uh, whether she dies at 40 or at 90, what's the difference? If you're in the kingdom of God forevermore... What difference did it make how long you lived here? <laughs> this will be gone and forgotten. In fact, the glory that is ahead of us will be so great that it says we won't even remember. We're not going to sit around and talk about back in the day that was before the resurrection. No need. You won't want to go back to this. So he says, don't forget your hope and your crown of rejoicing. This is, that's what this is all about. It doesn't matter how long we live. For you are our glory and joy. So he told these people, what, what joy did he have? What glory was there except that these people would be in the resurrection? I mean, that's what he was working for, was to help them get there. So they were, what he could show joy and glory through was what God would do through those people. So, Let's go on to chapter 3 then. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. We, we couldn't do anything about it, so we stayed at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul and uh, the main part of his party apparently had conditions that simply would not allow it, but they were able to get Timothy on the road 
and to get to Thessalonica and to give them comfort concerning their faith. Faith in what? God and the resurrection. That's our purpose here. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Now that's a very, very important verse. He says, We all know that we were appointed to trouble, to affliction, to distress, to trial, to conflict. And he says, We have this current conflict going on. And he says, Don't be moved by it. Don't be shaken, in other words. Don't be have your own faith weakened because we have enemies who don't agree with us. Now that was true then and it's true today. Never lose focus on why we're here. And he's already said that our crown of rejoicing and joy uh, is the resurrection. So no matter what happens uh, in the church, we've seen it fly apart. We've seen this congregation fly apart. He says, no matter what you see, Satan is trying to destroy. And he has those that he uses to help destroy. Uh, and he was speaking of the Jews here, saying that they were trying to help destroy. So, Satan uses whoever, whenever he can, to try to destroy anything that God is doing. But we're not supposed to be shaken by it. We're not supposed to be moved or, or upset or frustrated by it. Uh, so that we lose our focus on what we're here for, or begin to doubt. That's being shaken. If we begin to doubt, well, why are we here, and what are we doing, and why is God allowing all this to happen to us? Well, He has His reasons, and He has His purpose, and I can show you specific prophecies which indicate that this would be exactly what is happening right now to us, as well as what happened to Paul and others. I can show you now scriptures, and I have, that would show exactly what would happen to Worldwide Church of God. We didn't see it before it happened, but those, those scriptures are all there that show exactly what happened and why. Were a lot of people shaken by it? Yes, they were. Were a lot of people discouraged and gave up? Yes, they did. They didn't read 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, and believe it. Okay? And what Paul is saying here happened in that day, and it happened in Herbert Armstrong's day, and now we see it happening in our day. So listen up. Verse 4, For truly, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. I told you, in 2005, when I went through the book of Jeremiah, that there would be a rebellion at Anatoth. I said, I don't know when it's going to be, but it's right there on tape. It's on the Internet. Because that's what Jeremiah 11 and 12 talk about. <laughs> or 11, I guess it is. It says it will happen. So when I read it, I said, it's going to happen here. You know what? I simply believe that scripture. We didn't see any signs of it in 2005, really. But since the scripture said it, I knew it would happen. That's the reason I said it. It wasn't that I had any great insight. I just read what God said and believed it. Now when it happens to us, <laughs> do we get all shaken up? Or do we say, hey, that's what God said would happen. We'll deal with it. So Paul had tried to tell them ahead of time that they would suffer tribulation. Uh, and now it's come to pass, he says. And you know. Verse 5, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, he sent Timothy, lest by some means a tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. He was afraid that they would be shaken by what was happening not only to them, uh, with their enemies in Thessalonica, but shaken by the fact that Paul was having difficulty. You know, he was shipwrecked and snake-bit and uh, stoned and all kinds of things happened to him. 
And uh, that upset some people and discouraged some people. They thought, well, how can, how can Paul be a servant of God when he gets stoned and shipwrecked and snake bit, killed finally by the Romans? Well, same way the former prophets were and got stoned and killed by... So he sent Timothy uh, in hopes of encouraging them and that Satan would not get to them over the troubles that were there. But now when Timothy came from you to us, came back and brought us good tidings of your faith and love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. So there was an affection between Paul and those people there, and they all wanted to see each other. So Paul was saying, I'm sure glad that that's still intact. I'm glad you haven't turned from us as Alexander the coppersmith and others had. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So, Paul and the ministry with him were comforted through them. You know, what you do in the act and trust that you put in God is a comfort and a help and a strengthening for the ministry. Because you think, you know, is all the preaching in vain? But if people have good attitudes and are still focused on what they're supposed to be doing, then there's a certain comfort and strength in that. So the affliction and distress that he had suffered was ameliorated somewhat by their faith. For now we live... If you stand fast in the eternal. He says, (laughs) we haven't been killed. We still live. And if you stand fast in the eternal, God's going to take care of us. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So he says, I'm encouraged that you're still showing faith, that you're still faithful, that you're still, uh, our, our relationship is still there. But he says, I know you're not perfect yet, and we want to see you and even increase your faith, make you stronger. Uh, why am I reading this today on the Feast of Trumpets? That our faith might be enhanced and made stronger. That we might read these words and say, hey, Paul went through what a lot of things we might go through and are going through. Uh, And he was encouraged. They encouraged him and he encouraged them by keeping their focus where it ought to be and continuing to grow and might perfect that which is still lacking. So we can't kid ourselves. We're perfect. (laughs) Nobody can. Uh, But are we faithful? Are we strong? Are we staying? And are we working on having the kind of faith that we need? 11. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Emmanuel the Christ direct our way to you. And the Eternal make you to increase and abound in love one toward another in spite of enemies, in spite of trouble, in spite of tribulation. We need to love one another more. That's what he encourages. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. We're working on the same thing. He says, you work on it. Let's love each other. It is because of affliction, because of sin, the love of many will wax cold in the end time, Christ said there in Matthew 24. So it's a great danger. Verse 13, to the end, or for the purpose that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ with all his saints. So he's saying, we've got all this trouble, all this tribulation, all these difficulties, but the purpose is that we be unblameable in holiness when Christ returns. That's why he's writing this. He'll emphasize it even more as we go along here. Let's go to chapter 4. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Emmanuel, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, 
so you would abound more and more. So he's encouraging them to continue following what they've been taught. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Emmanuel. For this is the will of God, even your setting apart or sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. They had a problem with sexual sins and morality in Corinth and Thessalonica and other places. But every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and, in, and honor. In other words, don't give in to fornication and adultery and that type, type of misuse. Not in the lust of, of uh, concupiscence or uh, covetousness, lust, wrong sexual desires is what that means. Even as the Gentiles, which know not God. They're just out there doing whatever feels good and whatever they want to do, and they just do it. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Be careful not to defraud each other in any way. Financial uh, or any other ways. We've got people right now who are trying to defraud us of land that God gave, a congregation of God. Uh, for his purposes, and they're trying to take it over and even issue deeds so that some can sell it and it can't be used for the purposes God gave. So they're trying to extort it from us, trying to take it away from us, and God gave it to us. That's part of the instruction here is don't anybody do that kind of fraud. Because that the Eternal is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. So if we try to defraud one another, uh, God is the avenger. He's the one that will take care of it. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. The whole purpose of you and I being here and meeting today is to get away from any kind of uncleanness and to become holy. Holy just simply means to be like God, act like God, and think like God. He, therefore, that despises, despises not man, but God, who has also given us to his Holy Spirit. So what, were the, what was Paul facing? What were these Thessalonians facing? They were facing trouble from men, trouble from people, is what was the difficulty. And he says, they're not really despising man, they're despising God. Now that statement goes way back. Remember Samuel? Uh, when people despise Samuel. And God said, they're not really despising you, Samuel, they're despising me. God had appointed Samuel. And since God had appointed him, and they didn't like Samuel didn't like the way he was or the way he talked or the way he walked or the shape of his ears or whatever it was about Samuel they didn't like. <clears throat> God said, I appointed you, Samuel. And if they reject you, they're not really rejecting you. You're, they're rejecting he who appointed you. <laughs> they're rejecting me. And Paul is saying the exact same thing here. Not in the exact same words, but almost. He that despises us, speaking of his ministry and them as members of the church, does not despise man, but God, who also has given to us his Holy Spirit. So we have the Spirit of God. We have the truth of God. And those who despise us for the Spirit we have and the truth we have are despising God. But as touching brotherly love... You need not that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. That's from Genesis to Revelation. And that is something that is dying out among people in the church of God here in the end time, is love of the brethren. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, not just in your city. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more in love and concern and compassion for one another. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business. <laughs> Where do we get the expression, mind your own business? Well, here it is, written a long time ago. It's, it's in the Old Testament in various ways as well, but here it is in the New Testament. 
You, you make it a point, a study, uh, an importance, in other words, to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So stay busy with your own life, with your own work, and leave other people alone. We've got people who've departed from us. Are they out doing their own business? They're starting their own movement? No, they're trying to take this one away. They're not minding their own business. Of course, they say, this is our business. No, it isn't. You departed. You quit coming. You quit tithing. You quit giving offerings. You quit supporting in any way. Now you're trying to destroy that which has been built. Satan is the destroyer. People need to wake up. But we need to do our own business and trust God and serve Him and increase our faith. That's our job to do and to become holy, not fight them. Verse 12, that you may walk honest. It doesn't hurt to call a spade a spade. God does that through the Bible. And Paul is right here too. He's saying these people that are, are oppressing you are from Satan. And Satan hindered us and he's hindering you. So it's not wrong to say it, but we don't need to spend our lives worrying about it. We need to spend our lives focusing on becoming holy, not on them. Although we have to, we have to talk about to some degree and discuss what's going on and why and how we are not to be shaken by it. That's what Paul's doing, and I'm just reading what Paul wrote. Same situation he had. Anyway, verse 12, that, we, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, not in the church, and that you may have lack of nothing. So, if we obey God and please Him, we're not going to lack anything. He's going to take care of us. But I would not have you ig- to be ignorant, brethren. Now, He's going to use this stage, or this, to catapult Him into a discussion of the future again. He's already mentioned the resurrection. But here he's going to mention it specifically. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are dead, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So, some of you may die. Some of you are already dead, he says. But don't sorrow like people who don't understand the hope of God and the hope of the resurrection. For if we believe, and that's an important word, belief, that Emmanuel died and rose again, even so them also which are dead in Christ will God bring with him when he returns. He's going to resurrect them and bring them back with him after the honeymoon. For this we say to you by the word of the Eternal, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are dead. Oh, he may have still anticipated that uh, they, and maybe he, would be alive when Christ returned, but at some point he understood he was going to have to die, and all, as did all the other apostles. But there will be some who are alive and remain alive when Christ returns. So he's, it's projecting clear to the end. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first, those who have already died. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the people in Hebrews 11, people who have died in this age and in Paul's age, are going to be brought to life and resurrected slightly ahead of those who are alive and remain. Well, those who are alive and remain don't need resurrected, do they? But changed is the key. Those will start rising and be resurrected and changed into spirit, and then those which are alive and remain will join them. Now, it may only be seconds away or whatever. It's not a long period of time by any means. But those who have died in Christ faithfully will be raised at least a split second ahead of those who are still standing on earth. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air and will ever be with him. 
Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I have a sister, Rebecca, or did have, who died today about 1230 uh, of cancer. She'd been fighting it for some time and was in considerable trouble. I mentioned her at the beginning, I think, in the announcements, but uh, I saw her Sunday and had a, a good talk with her. Uh, she was still alert and could still respond well, but yesterday uh, she looked as much as dead. She hadn't had anything to eat or drink in over two days and, and was already, even last week, emaciated and dehydrated. But my sister Teresa came in from uh, Texas yesterday morning and, and uh, we were able to spend some time with Rebecca. She couldn't respond, but uh, when I got there, I told her who I was and she kind of half squeezed my hand a little bit. She could respond that much and I told her Teresa would be there in a few minutes and she kind of gave us a half smile. So she, she was still cognizant of who was around her, but she couldn't respond in any way other than a little bit of a smile and a squeeze. And uh, Teresa said in a text a little while ago that she, after that, she never really responded hardly at all, if at all. And then she died uh, today. And uh, we talked about it yesterday, and I even said a prayer with Teresa. Family was around, but basically Rebecca and Teresa and I were praying. and And I said that, it was okay for her to turn loose. She didn't have to feel that she just had to stay alive as with the suffering she'd been going through and still was. And, uh, and I says, what more fitting day for you than the Feast of Trumpets, picturing the return of Christ and your resurrection in a split second from the time that you do die. So we discussed it openly and had before with her, not just talking in her presence like yesterday, but... While it's sad to see her gone uh, for a little while, uh, and I loved her deeply, uh, it's going to be good to see her in the resurrection. And as I prayed in that prayer, that the rest of us be there to meet her when she does come up. <laughs> because we're, we're still here. We're still fighting the battle. Hers is done. And she was faithful to the end. She trusted God and was looking to Him for healing all through it. And... Uh, didn't go and have the chemo and all the stuff, the operations and things that she could have done. And I admire her and, and appreciate her that she simply left it in God's hands until the day she died. And uh, I have no doubt she's going to be in the resurrection when Christ returns. Now, that's not my decision, it's His, but from my standpoint and seeing the faithfulness that she showed and has showed in her life to God... Uh, that she's going to be there. I just hope the rest of us can be as well. So to me it was fitting, and it was to Teresa that this be the day, and, and actually she died just a few minutes before I started over here, and I was glad that I got the news before coming, uh, instead of wondering uh, this afternoon. So he said, comfort one another with these words of the resurrection. And I'm comforted to know my sister is looking to the resurrection. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> and I want to kind of approach it the same way uh, in the context of what Paul was trying to get across. Because he spends the whole of chapter 15 really on the resurrection. <coughs> 1 Corinthians Uh, but let's pick it up here in chapter 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, he's been talking about God not being the author of confusion, but peace and, uh, and so on, and unity in the church. Then he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you did receive, and wherein you stand by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, people will say, look at that and say, well, you are saved. No, none of us are saved yet. We're being saved from ourselves. We're being saved from Satan. But as long as we're still alive and on this earth, we are not fully saved. 
we may be in the process of being saved out of this world, but until you come up in the resurrection, uh, you're not saved. Maybe your judgment has already been made by the time you die uh, by God, but as long as you're walking around here, you're not saved. You can fall. And Paul says right immediately after that term that people jerk out of context, you are saved, he said, if you keep in memory what I preach to you, that your Christianity not be in vain. So uh, we're only saved ultimately if we remember what we've been taught and follow it. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now there's some verses here we need to believe, brethren. We need to believe all the way deep in our hearts. What did Paul preach to them? That Christ died for our sins, and that they can be forgiven. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen of Peter, that of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, whole congregation, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some have died. So this was uh, some years after Christ's death and resurrection that Paul was speaking, and a lot of those people were still alive. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Uh, Paul had a low opinion of himself in a lot of ways because he had killed people in the church. And he mentions that. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, that I'm not, I'm not qualified to be called one because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> uh, God had forgiven him for killing Christians. Uh, we think of David sometimes. Well, David killed Uriah. Well, Paul killed a lot more Christians than David ever did Israelites. And yet God forgave him and made him an apostle in spite of all his sins. <clears throat> now, he didn't do it with malice aforethought, thinking, I'm going to kill these Christians, uh, because he didn't know they were Christians. But they were followers of Christ, and he didn't believe in him, and that was good enough for him. I'll kill them. Then he got struck down and came to know who God was. and that that grace, that pardon that God had given him was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul had been given a great reprieve, and he worked hard uh, at helping establish true Christianity after having killed people for following it. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." He's reminding them of why they're there, what their purpose is. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some evidently have begun to believe there's no resurrection. I've met people like that who don't think there was a resurrection, that Christ just had a bunch of children by a lot of women and died. But there are a lot of people who don't accept that Christ that Christ could have been resurrected. Do you really believe it? That's what Paul's question. Do you really believe he was resurrected? That he actually died and then came back to life? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. The wages of sin is death. If you and I have sinned, and we all have, then we're scheduled to die unless Christ came and God died in our place and was resurrected. If he died for our sins, that isn't good enough. Okay? It isn't good enough that Christ died for our sins. Because death is the wages of sin. If he was not then resurrected, then there's no point. <laughs> there's just no point. Because we're still in our sins. They might, they might have been forgiven through His death, through His blood. But unless He was resurrected, we aren't going to be resurrected. So that makes our faith in vain. 
you and I are scheduled to die at some point. It is, account, it is appointed to all men once to die. So we better believe in the resurrection. That's what he's establishing here. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. <coughs> What's the point of religion? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen dead in Christ are perished. <clears throat> if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Most people on earth are not asked to do what you and I are asked to do. <coughs> we are asked to keep the commandments of God. We are asked not to sin. The rest of the world can do whatever they wish, whenever they wish, with whomever they wish. And it's okay. <coughs> it's not ultimately, but they are not under pressure to overcome and grow and to be in the first resurrection. They'll be in the second. So the pressure's on us. And it's hard to overcome. Have you noticed that? It's hard not to sin. It's hard to be like God. And if, this, if only what we live on this earth is the reward, then why fight it? <coughs> I think he even says here somewhere we might as well eat and drink and be merry. Maybe later in the chapter. I'm not sure it's the place. But now is Christ risen from the dead, verse 20, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death... Through Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. The day that you sin, you will die, he said. And Adam eventually did, and so will we. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So all will be made alive. In some resurrection, each in his order. Every man in his own order, as he says, Christ the firstfruits, afterward the day of Christ at his coming. So, the first resurrection will occur at Christ's coming, which occurs at the last trump. Feast of Trumpets pictures that. Then comes the end of the age, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So, he's going to come back. He's going to resurrect us. And he's going to take charge of the world and put down all his enemies and turn it over to God the Father at the beginning of the millennium. And he and the Father will come down with the new Jerusalem and rule on the earth and be the temple of it during the thousand years, contrary to what we used to believe in worldwide. I don't have time to go into all that, but I've proved it from Scripture before. Uh, verse 26, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, we may have a lot of enemies, human enemies, uh, Satan, the demons, uh, our own human nature. Those are all enemies that we have. And the last enemy we have, which is that which keeps us from being eternal in the kingdom of God, is death. And even that one will be overcome. See, when you die, physically, you are beyond any enemies. You're beyond Satan's influence. You're beyond human influence. You're beyond the influence of your own deceitful, desperately wicked mind. You're beyond all enemies except death. And Christ will fix that one at the resurrection. I made the comment. My sister is not subject to Satan anymore. She's not subject to those whom Satan sends to destroy anymore. And she was. She's not now. She's at peace. She's waiting the last enemy to be destroyed. And that's the death that took her about less than two hours ago. <clears throat> Verse 27, For he has put all things under his feet, 
But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is, accept- he is accepted, which did put all things under him. He's not going to be over the Father. The Father is the one that put him in charge. And when all things shall be subdued to him, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that the Father, God, may be all in all. Now, if this isn't going to happen, he says, what shall they do which are baptized for the hope of the dead? What is the hope of the dead? They have no hope other than the resurrection. That's what the hope of the dead is. We've got a whole Mormon religion that get baptized for dead people. They, they think they have to get... So-and-so wasn't baptized, and that's why they have their genealogies. They go back, and oh, they spend a lot of time on genealogy to be sure somebody gets baptized for somebody else that died a long time ago. Crazy. What does the Bible say in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized. Well, those people that died four, five, six, thirty generations ago didn't repent and get baptized. And you can't repent for them. <laughs> But it's just a matter of not understanding that hopur is in the Greek here. What shall they do which are baptized for the hope of the dead? That's why I was baptized, was the hope of the dead. Because I knew I'd die someday, and I wanted to have Christ and God's Spirit in me, that I might be resurrected someday. That was That's our hope. What good is it to be, to, to be baptized if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for, for the hope of the dead? Why go through baptism? Why go through repentance? There's no resurrection. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Did he, meet, did he believe you're once saved, always saved? No, he didn't. He realized he was still in jeopardy. He said if he was concerned that he would be faithful to the end and not become a castaway. Well, if Paul was ever saved, as Protestantism says, or if anybody was ever saved, you'd think Paul would have been one of them. And yet he said there was always danger he could become a castaway, cast away from the kingdom of God. So we stand in jeopardy every hour, don't we? That we lose faith and don't trust God. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Emmanuel, our Lord, I die daily. He says it's not just a matter of dying at the end of this physical life. We have to die daily. What has to die daily? Do you have to die and get resurrected every day? No. But your human nature, your way of thinking, your way of doing, has to be killed, has to be subdued, has to be destroyed every day because the human mind is selfish and deceitful and desperately wicked. And we're full of vanity, lust, envy, greed, and jealousy and all those things that are works of the flesh. So he had to crucify himself, he said. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if they put me to the lions... What advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Why would I proclaim myself a Christian and get fed to the lions if I'm not going to be resurrected anyway? You know, I could avoid the lions by saying, no, I'm not a Christian. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no greater purpose for us, then we might as well just eat, drink, and do our thing. And then when we die, that's the end of it. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In other words, stay away from those who speak evil, who speak negative, who communicate evil imaginations. You're supposed to stay away from them because they will corrupt your good works. You'll be affected by it. And first thing you know, you'll begin to believe it. So he says, stay away from that stuff. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says, some of you just aren't getting it. But some man will say, well, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Somebody always has the technical question. Well, 
you believe in a resurrection. How does it happen? Here's so-and-so died 30 years ago, and if I dig him up, I'm going to find a little bit of hair and some decaying bones. How's that going to get resurrected? How's that going to be made alive? Who cares? I could care less. I just want to be made alive. I don't care how God goes about it. But there will be some who will quibble over technicalities. You fool. That which you sow is not quickened except it die. And that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some of other grain. But God gives it a body that has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. A grain of rice, a grain of wheat, has life in it that God has put there. And when it germinates and begins to grow, that kernel dies. But the new plant comes from it. So he says, God is sowing you here on the earth, and you have to die, but out of that will come a new life. And he goes on to explain that. All flesh is not the same flesh, verse 39, but there's one kind of flesh of men, and another of beasts, and another of fishes, and another of birds. Their heavenly bodies and physical human or uh, earthly bodies. And the sun shines bright, and there's a glory of the moon is not as bright, and the stars, and they all different in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. So we die because we're human, and we're corruptible. And we begin to rot and stink almost immediately. Well, we do. I mean, as soon as somebody dies, their bowels and their uh, urinary tract are loosed, and they foul themselves immediately, as soon as they die. And the stink just gets worse from that moment on. So we're sown in corruption. A human body is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So he goes on to show some very incredible, inspiring, and encouraging things here. That we're not always going to be like we are today. We're going to be changed. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. We're still human, we're still physical. That which is the spirit is spirit, and that which is the flesh is flesh, John 3. So it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, Christ. He was resurrected. Adam hasn't been yet, but the last Adam, Christ, uh, has been. Adam represented all men as a sinner. Christ represented all men as a non-sinner. <coughs> The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the eternal from heaven. As is the earth, earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. You're either physical or you're spirit. You're not in between. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We'll have the glory, the image of God. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There are people that think that the kingdom of God's already here, that humans are ruling it. There are people that literally think that. What does this say? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. The kingdom of God's not going to be here till we're changed. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So when we die physically, all of our enemies have no access to us at all. The only enemy remaining is the death that we suffered. 
and it will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? I watched my sister go through the sting of death. I saw her yesterday, almost completely out of it, with her head back and her mouth wide open as people do, just before they die and as they die. And I saw her skin emaciated and wrinkled and terribly uh, skinny from loss of weight due to the cancer. Death is not a pretty picture. She went through a lot of horror, through a lot of pain, through a lot of misery, a lot of self-doubt, and finally came down on the side of, I'm going to trust God and I will live again. And she was finally somewhat peaceful in death, knowing that she'd be in the resurrection. So she came finally to have peace with the idea that she indeed was going to die. But it's not a pretty picture. It has a sting. It has a hurt. We have, naturally, a fear of physical death. We may not be afraid to be dead, but we certainly don't like the idea of the process. We don't want to turn loose and die. It is an enemy. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel. Therefore, my beloved, my brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, in spite of any persecution, any troubles, any restrictions, any lack of trouble and Satan hindering and all the things that Paul had, had gone through. Unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal.